Hi, everyone. Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. We've got a special edition of Millennium Live today. We sat down with Vindel Washington, former National Coordinator for Health IT in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Vindel is now the Chief Medical Officer of Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Louisiana. Joining him in the conversation is Bunny Ellerin, Columbia University's Director for the Healthcare and Pharmaceutical Management Program. With the backgrounds of both of these powerhouses, we knew it would be a lively conversation. Thank you so much. This has been such a fun day so far. So thank you, Millennium. Um, so I run the um, healthcare and pharmaceutical management program at Columbia Business School. So we are training the future leaders for healthcare um, in the United States and globally. So thank you. Um, and so it's so uh, it's my privilege really to um, talk tonight with uh, Dr. Vindell Washington. Um, who I got to know over the past uh, week, couple of weeks. Um, and what struck me about Dr. Washington is what an interesting background he has. Um, it spans multiple sectors um, along the uh, health care ecosystem, provider, health system, tech, government, and payer. So, Vindel, you were trained as an emergency medicine physician, right? Um, you've, you ran a large physician group in North Carolina. Um, you served as CMIO of Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady Health System in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then you went on to become the National Coordinator for Health IT at HHS, which is one of the biggest jobs in yeah, hello. Yes, one of the, the biggest jobs you can have. Um, and then uh, you've now been the chief medical officer of um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Louisiana, for about a year. So I wanted to start with your time at ONC, right? Which, for those of us in the private sector who don't get a lot of time um, understanding what goes on in government, you know, hard to know, right? Um, so what drew you to government and what was ONC like? Um, thanks, Bunny, for that. Uh, I kind of have to start my discussion about my time at HHS with a little bit of a story because there's a lesson to be learned from it, I think. So I um, was a CMIO at the health system in Baton Rouge, and I had done my usual, which was to complain about the way the world works and the things that I thought should be changed. <laughs> and so I ended up going to see our senator, Senator Cassidy, to give him a piece of my mind about this whole meaningful use thing. And lo and behold, about a month or two later, he had a Senate Help Committee uh, uh, testimony that he required of uh, or asked me to participate in. So I got up there and I wandered up and I told him how things should work and what the real world should um, be like, et cetera, et cetera. And so the lesson I learned was, you know, don't really complain about something without the right amount of understanding or empathy, because that problem may be your problem pretty soon. <laughs> and about uh, somewhere around six or eight months later, I went to work uh, for Secretary Burwell um, with the Obama administration uh, in health IT. But really, the nidus was just thinking about things that I 
had experienced from the beginning of the Meaningful Use program in 2009 and mm-hmm. making some suggestions. And so it was, it was a little bit of serendipity. I, I can't tell you if you'd asked me before that, how do you apply to be the national coordinator? I had no clue and mm-hmm. uh, had no idea how White House uh, personnel office worked or any of those things. So uh, a bit of serendipity, but it was a great experience for me and I enjoyed my time. Okay, so great, but like, what did you do at, you know, there? Because yeah, a lot happens there that affects all of us in this room. So. Yeah, so look, the, 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 the job description is really around um, setting the tone for health IT policy for the country. So it, it sounds as big and broad as it is. And so um, the main part of the certification activity I did was to talk to the 800 EMR vendors across the country and set standards for how they work and practice. Um, but we were also responsible for all the components of health IT that went across the federal government. So that includes the Indian Health Service. It includes um, uh, giving recommendations to the VA and DOD. And, uh, and my most uh, sort of satisfying experience on it was to really revamp the way the Meaningful Use program worked. Um, phase three of, or stage three of Meaningful Use was really going to be another series of checklists, about 34, by the way. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I was able to do in collaboration with CMS over that period of time was to change the Meaningful Use program from really just a series of checkboxes to really five or six mandatory items and have all those mandatory items be about information exchange. And so I leaned in on the interoperability piece of it. And so I would say uh, that that was sort of one of my major sort of accomplishments and things I'm most proud of. What we worked hardest on were things like the 21st Century Cures Act, though, where we really tried to say, um, literally we would get complaints from providers about their EMR systems and they couldn't exchange data and their vendor made them pay X, Y, or Z for the basics. And um, the 21st Century Cures Act really was the first bit of legislation that we worked on uh, across both sides of the aisle. We were sort of discussing kind of the Senate Health Committee at, at my table for dinner. And one of our biggest proponents for that was Senator Alexander and pushing that through so that there's real teeth behind bad actors in the health IT space. And so it was really, it's really a rewarding time. And if I can, I'll share one other part of what I think we did most uh, effectively, and that was this sort of construct of delivery system reform. So most of what we did across the agency was to try to work for changing the way that care was delivered, physicians were paid, and that in the infrastructure that supported it. And so all of the bundles that came out, all the CMMI initiatives, et cetera, that we pushed for really hard in the last years of the administration were aimed at trying to change the alignment and the relationship between payers in this ecosystem and um, the, uh, the providers who were sort of subject to it. Well, I know you and I, and today also, we've talked a lot about alignment of incentives, right? Yes. And how that... Um, impacts healthcare. Yeah. So what? Um, so you you were at ONC. So yeah. what drew you to the payer side? Why did you go to that side? Yeah. Well, can we go back to serendipity again? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, part of the one of the things I did realize when I was at HHS, and uh, this was my sort of bit of a my epiphany, was that you really can't 
um, change some of the fundamental components of the healthcare delivery system without changing the way healthcare is paid for. And so, um, you know, my anecdote is when I was on the provider side, I had a supportive CEO. And at that time, I was also responsible for our medical group. So I had 500 physicians across the state. I had a supportive CEO. We gave a lot of lip service to value-based care delivery. But the fact of the matter is when the 10-year capital plan came up and my data warehouse or my care and case and disease management strategies came up against the 100-bed tower that was going to get built or the ambulatory surgery center, I always lost. And I lost because at the end of the day, the capital structure and the alignment was not appropriate to allow for that investment to be made. That was one of the things that sort of struck me. And so um, I noticed when we were working on MACRA and the MIPS program at CMS with Andy Slavitt and that crew, and we would talk to CEOs of health systems across the country, they were completely tuned in about what we were going to do. And we would sort of have an interesting dynamic where folks would really rail when the cameras were around. And then afterwards, we'd sort of get a pat on the back to say, you know, really push hard on this value thing, because if CMS doesn't take the lead on these bundles, et cetera, we, we won't get there. Mm. And so my draw on the provider side was to say, on the payer, to the payer side was to say, I could have a role like that in Louisiana, a place that really needs some disruption, if I could be on the side of the largest payer in the state, the largest private payer in the state, and align some of the incentives so that the guy that's in my old job at the health system across town has a chance when the capital budgets are made to really change the way care is delivered in the state. Wow. So those of us like who are not in my, like in this day to day, like that's pretty amazing, right? That you would think that. Um, all right. So now that you're at Blue Cross Blue Shield LA, what are some of the big issues that you're really excited about? Well, um, I'll start with the problems. Um, you know, Louisiana is a pretty poor state. Uh, Louisiana has pretty bad health outcomes. If you look at our social determinants across our state, it's really difficult. Um, one of the other sort of not so happy topics that I was talking with some friends about today was the fact that we have the fourth highest rate of uh, colon cancer deaths in the country. And so we have a lot of problems in that space. And one of the first things I noticed and sort of leaned in on was how do I work in a system that has limited resources and provide those resources where they're needed and to have a real outcome for the citizens of the state. So one of the things I'm most excited about is the work that we're doing from a data analytics perspective. And there's a reason for the data analytics. I, I would say that um, we had good programs for disease management, but when I first joined the plan a year ago, we kind of spread them around like peanut butter. I mean, essentially, if you had diabetes, you got a pre-visit call, you had someone check on your medications, you had um, uh, some encouragement from our uh, diabetic dietitian, but we really uh, had no capacity to treat um, person A any different than person B, even if we knew they had different needs. And so one of the things I'm most excited about is our ability to now use um, artificial intelligence and in particular machine learning to say, if we're going to try something new and innovative, where should we apply those resources in a resource-constrained environment? Mm -hmm. And so what we do now is we use a lot of voice-to-text work to change our call center calls. And my 
nurse case manager calls into data. We take claims data. We take um, clinical data from EMRs. We have a pretty robust exchange that's in place with that. And then what we come out with is a series of folks to whom we lean in pretty heavily to try new uh, interventions. And so we do things like uh, we have some home health resources we bring to bear. I think in one of the sessions earlier, people were talking about using Lyft or Uber for folks to help them get to appointments. Um, but the fact of the matter is we can't do home blood pressure monitoring or Lyft or Uber for every single diabetic on our panel. What we're trying to do is to concentrate efforts where the data and analytics say they're going to be um, best uh, received and that they're most needed. And then for the bottom side of the pyramid, we're actually pivoting away from a lot of touches. I'll share one anecdote on this. So uh, as one of the uh, early conversations I had as a new leader of the health group, I went to one of my primary care docs. This is before I got to government. And I said, so you have your diabetics and you see them four times a year. And I said, well, you know, is, that, is there any literature on that? Why do you see them four times a year? He says, well, Blue Cross pays for them to be seen four times a year. And so from, from my perspective, if you're at the bottom side of that pyramid, I'm convinced that there are a lot of chronic diseases that can either be virtually managed mm -hmm. with an annual visit or an every other year visit, uh, such that the, the, the deployment of resources across our plan will be the exact inversion of the pyramid today. And we will have no specific treatment that is done for every single patient because we're going to recognize there's a level of precision that we can bring to the table in our analysis of what's needed in the market. And that's one of the things I'm sort of most excited about. We have a, a test and learn strategy that allows us to deploy analytics in a way that allows us to deliver the right care for members across the state. And I think that's really gonna help us move the ball forward. So vis-a-vis -vis analytics, obviously that's a huge area. Yes. Um, how are you doing that? Is it an internal um, thing or external? How are you yeah. doing that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, in the whole buy versus make scenario, I spent most of my career on the uh, buy side because uh, when I was a CMIO at the health system, if I had a, just a dime for every time an analyst walked in and said I could build that, I'd be a rich person because half of them didn't work out. But um, we actually were lucky enough to get some talent in place. And the one thing I will say uh, with, you know, so the short answer is we are doing it internally. But the one thing I will tell you that I think is different in this marketplace is that when you're talking about some of the basic machine learning tools, uh, it is not the rocket science it was a decade ago or 15 years ago. There are a lot of off-the-shelf strategies that you can deploy or combination cloud and internal resource strategies that doesn't require a plan of our size in Louisiana to, um, to sort of mine the, the best talent in the world to execute on these kinds of plans and activities. So we do much of the machine learning internal. Most of the voice to text stuff is from Alphabet or uh, some uh, Google sources. We do some offshore work. Uh, we've got that support th through some contracting with uh, Deloitte and some analysis that helped us find the right companies to do that. We're convinced for this level of activity uh, that we're able to do much of that machine learning and AI internally. 
And then when it comes to things that are more robust, I suspect we'll revisit that scenario. But we think that it's possible for plans and even health systems of certain size to do some of this analytic work on their own. So AI, like you can't have a healthcare conference, right, without talking about AI. <laughs> That's my job to bring it up. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. know, of course, it's the new, new thing. Um, AI is the thing right now, but there are some limitations, right? I yeah. mean, it's not every. So what are some of the challenges that are inherent with AI today? Well, I talk with my team about this a lot. So... Um, so one concrete example, and I'll use my health plan and my job. If you were to say, I would want to use machine learning to say who is the person who should sit in as the CMO at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana, uh, a black male doctor who came from the provider side would not fit that <laughs> machine learning algorithm. Okay. So it's really not, there's not magic in the machine learning algorithm itself. You have to bring some sense of what you're studying to the table because in effect, what machine learning does and the abstract is to say, what happened in the past? And can I use that to predict what's going to happen in the future? And so there are lots of pitfalls you can use. Now, one of the things we looked at, for example, is the, the uh, use of some tools around um, self-management in the New Orleans market. And you really have to be careful about deciding whether or not someone is too old, too poor, too, too um, young to use a certain set of tools just because they haven't used them in the past. But I will tell you that in a situation like ours where there are limited resources and you have good clinical insight that you want to deploy, but you have a complex problem, I think that's one of the areas that machine learning can be completely helpful. As we say, the machine learning can sort of offer you some suggestions, but then you have to use um, your special expertise to decide whether or not those things really make sense, or even from a moral perspective, should be pursued. And so I think your point about you know, pursuing some of the uh, AI and machine learning uh, aspects really at this point require you to to take a balanced approach. So I know, um, you know, today technology obviously is um, has been a big topic. Yeah. Um, with with you at um, uh, BCBS um, LA, what other technologies are you employing to help with your, you know, um, patients like televisits? Yeah. yeah. We have a pretty broad approach, I would say. Um, one of the things that I actually took with me from uh, Baton Rouge to D.C. Was a, was a certain approach, which is to say that a lot of this is um, the real magic is to try to tell the tool from the toy. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is that we have a, 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 a propensity to deploy technology but I would say really only where we think that there's a, a real problem to be solved and really try not to do technology for technology's sake. And so I'll give you a couple of specific examples. So we know that in a couple of parishes um, in the Lafayette area, which is about um, a couple hours west of New Orleans, we literally counted the number of diabetic um, dietitian, diabetic educators. And uh, there were five and three of which were assigned to the federally health qualified folks, uh, health centers there. So there's literally not enough uh, resource there. And we felt that that was like the perfect spot for us to deploy some telemedicine activity. So 
we used uh, a vendor to help us um, extend our reach to that market. We think that that's a, uh, a smart use of technology. On the other hand, I think we're really careful about um, telemedicine sort of in and of itself or on its own um, um, standalone merit. We think that there's some smart places to deploy it, and we have to be um, good about that. The other one I want to share with you that I think is um, is particularly interesting to me is this idea about how you manage people who are doing reasonably well and can technology play a role in that. And so one of the other programs that I'm excited about is we're doing a program uh, in, in a collaboration with the health system in New Orleans where we do blood pressure management with uh, blood pressure monitoring at home tools and a pharmacy team that actually adjusts blood pressure medicines. And so for us, what we found is if you just walk into a patient room and you say you have high blood pressure, it's an important disease, take your medicine, about, in our experience, about three in 10 people will take their medicine and things will be all fine. And there may be another three or four that you get to the table if you put robust uh, disease management, if you align with physicians, uh, if you sort of work um, uh, you know, really hard at it, but you still end up with only seven or eight out of 10. So what we're trying to do is to figure out, is there a way to use some technology and some smarter strategies to get to that ninth and 10th person out of 10 to do this? And so those are the kinds of areas that we are leaning pretty heavily in from a technology perspective that we think either extends our reach or provides services in ways that we hadn't thought about before. And in particular, we're interested in those doing those things that have partnerships with providers in the community. And we think that that's a, that's a key aspect of this um, technology delivery. So the other thing we can't not talk about because it's, you know, healthcare is blockchain. So who here, like, who here understands blockchain? Raise your hand. Yeah, great. All right, so absolutely <laughs> none of us understand blockchain. <laughs> However... It is important to understand blockchain. So we're not going to we're not going to give you a tutorial tonight about blockchain. But thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we will not. However, if you don't un, like, you got to kind of know a little bit about it. So, how do you think it will be employed in the payer community or in healthcare generally? Um, so I, I think that uh, you know we've talked about this a little bit. Um, in our earlier conversations. Yep. And I think, I think, you know, I think there's going to be a role for blockchain. I'll tell you one of the things that we did when I was national coordinators, we actually had a challenge and we had about 50 folks across the country write us their ideas about ways that blockchain could be used in healthcare and, um, you know, really innovative ideas and thoughts. Um, I think the real um, enticing portion of how blockchain works that can be used is really this idea that you can have nodes in the system with information that can exchange information securely node to node. And, and the reason I think it's important is that um, some of the barriers to information exchange are that these large entities that have information are quite concerned that because they are custodians of that information for some period of time, they're going to be at significant risk if that information is um, hacked, shared in an untoward way, et cetera. So to me, one of the promises of blockchain is really around the privacy and security aspects of it. Um, and so uh, I'm not smart enough to predict for you exactly when and how it will de be deployed. I think that there is a there there when we talk about blockchain. Uh, and I think it's an exciting thing. I think most of us really heard, 
heard most about blockchain when it comes when it came down to Bitcoin or for some drug kingpin exchanging money in some secure fashion. So it sort of came to us in this sort of nefarious way. Right. But um, uh, and I actually still think it's there. But if you go to the ONC website, there's some really interesting um, there's some really interesting ideas that people across the country put on the table about ways that you can use this kind of technology to really free data and to allow the empowerment of individuals in this care delivery uh, scenario to exchange information in a secure fashion with those uh, who need it. Uh, and so at a time and place of your choosing, you can exchange information. I think that's one of the critical aspects that I'm excited about. So I would say about blockchain and all technologies, Right, like we all think about cryptocurrency or like yeah. whatever, but the reality is it it is actually a pretty interesting technology yes. that will um, inform a lot. So if you don't understand like the basics, do a webinar, like something, yeah. because it's actually important to yeah. understand that. Yeah. So um, want to like... Uh, change topics a little bit. I mean, who here um, in the room doesn't care about drug pricing? Yeah, right. So, <laughs> exactly. So, obviously, um, drug pricing is a, um, a major concern for many of you. Um, and in particular, I think oncology prices, right? Um, in terms of what we're paying for. Um, so, how, um, how's uh, your plan addressing the drug pricing issue? Yeah, um, I have to be careful about this topic for a couple of reasons. Number one, that it's probably the folks in the room, your biological clock is somewhere around midnight or so if you came from the oh, East right. Coast. Oh, so yeah. I have to be careful on, on right. this piece. We can, uh, yeah. but, I, but I will sort of uh, narrow down to a couple of uh, yes. high points on this. Um, you know, our plan, um, we, we've had a pretty light touch when it comes to pharma. Um, but I will tell you that the platform is sort of more than just burning these days. And I think the people who are interested in it now include a bunch of folks, including our providers, who, frankly, heretofore were pretty much sort of asleep on this whole issue. Um, one of the things that, that strikes me, and we looked at our claims dollars, and I think we're probably similar to many in the country, but in 2009, we um, paid our, um, our prescription drug costs for about 19 uh, cents out of the premium dollar. And in 2016, our prescription drug costs were somewhere around 26 cents uh, of a premium dollar. And so it's not like this drug pharma issue is one that has been going on forever or that we have a 30-year history of this issue. This is a relatively quick um, uh, and sharp increase in uh, over-the-counter drug costs. This is before CAR-T therapy and you know, maybe in a little bit of that, you have some uh, some uh, Hep C drugs, et cetera. But but literally, this is sort of um, a, a change before some of these even more expensive things are coming down the pipeline. And for us, last year was the first year that we actually paid more of the premium dollar for prescription drugs than we did to physicians. And so when I've been having my sessions with doctors, it's one of the things that really gets people's attention. And so we're going at it at a number of different ways. We're leaning in on just following the uh, actual um, trends from a drug perspective, because in our experience, it's not really the new, exciting breakthrough discovery. It's some uh, company saying, look, if I put this proton pump inhibitor and this non together, even though it costs $41 a month, 
uh, over the counter, I can have a prescription for it for $2,300 a month and I can give my patient a coupon and everything will be great. I mean, for us, a lot of the increase has been uh, our pharmacy lead calls them pharma shenanigans. And so, so we've leaned in on, on that. We've also tried to, again, partner with physicians and have more transparency. So we have a lot of work from an IT perspective on trying to do some transparency uh, efforts with providers. I remember the first time I talked to a group of orthopedic doctors who were handing out coupons for this, uh, the Duexis of Removo drugs or these combination drugs. And the look on their faces, it was just pretty clear. They had no clue um, what their actions had relative to the negotiation for their next contract or the overall cost to the plan. And so what we're trying to do is to have that information come closer and closer to the physician at the time of prescribing, working with our um, PBM and others to do some data transparency efforts. And then we're also trying to make it clear to patients. I will tell you, I think we're behind in that and that I think the data we give patients by and large is pretty poor. Um, You know, we have a pretty complicated prescription regimen where you have tiered pharmaceuticals for patients. And what we usually tell them is that if you go to Walgreens versus Walmart, you may have a savings. I think for it really to be a tool that works, it has to be have a lot higher degree of accuracy and the information that we give uh, patients. But the the short answer is we are particularly worried. We uh, think that is something new. And so I, I fundamentally reject that this um, this over-the-counter, sorry, this uh, pharmaceutical prescription drug piece is a uh, new horizon activity. And I think the reason that we're leaning in so hard is that we think that over the next period of time, and we're really talking about new oncological drugs, or we're talking about new TNF drugs, and we're talking about really new breakthrough things, it's it's only going to worsen the intensity of this um, this uh, pressure that's on the entirety of the health system. So before I do Q and A, so you have had an amazing career, right? Like you have done so many impressive things across the ecosystem, and all of us in this room have been in healthcare for a long time, right? Like we've seen yeah. it all. Yeah. What makes you optimistic? For the future, um, I well, uh, the short answer is actually <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually actually I'm optimistic. Um, I think we all. I mean, uh, we all are. I, I'm I'm optimistic. So, so I'll share one um, uh, thought that I'm slightly reluctant to share, but it's it's what I believe. I think that we have a series of steps that we needed to take to move forward in healthcare, and although. It resonates with me when people talk about um, uh, getting back to practice that is a um, a more patient-centered and concentrates more on the doctor-patient relationship. But here's one thing that I know. A lot of the things that we talk about in terms of precision medicine, population health management, all those things, those things, there's no way those things could have happened in the healthcare system that we had 20 or 25 years ago. I think it really is a move to go forward. And so I look at some of the work that we did at ONC. I look at the fact now that most of the health system is wired. I think it's a good step on the way forward. I've 
share with a few folks that the four of us who were the national coordinators during the Obama administration, we put out an article in New England Journal. We basically said a few things. One of them was, we're happy that we are wired. We feel bad that a lot of that came on the backs of providers, physicians in general, because we think the design was uh, leads a little bit to be desired. But we also feel like it was the fundamental building block to allow us to move forward on a lot of the things that we want to do. And the last thing I'll share about that is I think that if you talk about the stakeholders that exist in the community, one of the reasons that EMRs do whatever they do or what they don't do is that there are a lot of stakeholders at that table. And I'll tell you one group that I have had the opportunity to speak with across the country that are pretty darn happy that things have gone the way they've gone. And that's CFOs of your health systems and IDNs, because if there's one thing that EMRs did not miss a beat on is making sure that your rev cycle stayed the way that it was expected to stay over that period of time. What I'm hopeful of, and I actually see a lot of evidence of that when I talk to my friends in Silicon Valley and some of the startups is that now people are really leaning in. There are a lot of really exciting companies that are doing both some machine learning and voice recognition, uh, clinical decision support to actually make the experience much better for both the provider and the um, and the patient that are doing this work. And I'm actually encouraged by a lot of the work that I see among our folks in the Blues Plans and other provider payer organizations where this idea of partnership has really come to the forefront. I've heard more discussions about shared arrangements, products that people go to the market with, consolidations that really make me think that we're on the cusp of some good things. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out our other interviews exclusively on Digital Diary. Thank you.